Exodus chapter 3. These are applications. These are applications. Melissa, my wife, and I have had a pretty rocky time with visa applications in the past. Uh, The worst was back in 2009 when Melissa was applying for a one-year stay visa for the UK. Uh, We were about to get married here in Malaysia before returning to the UK to live there for a year where I was halfway through my uh, studies at seminary at, at Bible college. Uh, and so we went to the, uh, to the office after we'd put our application in. They said, okay, the response is ready. And we, we sat down and we took this big uh, envelope and we just tore it and pulled up the slip. And it was just this big red stamp on the top, rejected. And there was just a long, stony silence when we read the report as to why Melissa's visa had been refused. And it felt like our lives had just imploded. So much was riding on it. And in frustration, I said in my heart, God, where are you? Do you know how important this visa is? I can't leave my wife, my, my, the wife I've just married for, for a year, but I'm only halfway through you know, training to be a minister for your gospel. Yes, my my Christian character needed a lot of work. My dear wife will tell you it still does. But maybe you can relate to that. Doubting God's faithfulness in a troubling situation. Oh, we can't see anything but the hardship that we're facing. And we forget the foundation God has given us as his people to know he is trustworthy worthy and good in all things. Well, in our verses today, the faithful God makes himself known to Moses. And he gives Moses a very special command, but Moses is reluctant. Despite all of the assurances that God gives to him, Moses can only see the hardship that God is calling him to. Let's start back in verse 1, where God makes his presence known to Moses. Verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jephro, the priest of Midian, that he led his flock to the, west of the, uh, to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Well, God certainly knows how to make an entrance. His angel or messenger appears as a flame of fire to Moses in the midst of a burning bush, close to where Moses was looking after his sheep as that shepherd. And that certainly gets his attention. I'm sure if, if, the, if the bushes behind me were just suddenly caught on fire, that might get your attention. But Moses, he's curious because the burning bush that he sees, in one sense, it's not burning. It's not deteriorating. It's on fire, no question about that. But the fire, it's not harming the bush in any way. It's just an incredible sight. But when Moses, out of curiosity, just you know, wants to get a little bit closer, God speaks. And he starts with a word of warning. 
In verse 4, Moses, Moses. Verse 5, do not come near. Take your sandals off, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Moses is told, keep your distance and show reverence. Take your sandals off, because that was a a common custom to show respect in his day. And it starts to dawn on Moses as he hears those words, why reverence and keeping his distance is so essential here. As this messenger in the burning bush introduces himself in verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses had good reason to be afraid. He knew now he was speaking with Almighty God. Uh, The God who is holy and pure and who cannot stand any wickedness in his presence. I think that's why the bush in which God appears to him is burning. It's on fire. Fire in Exodus, it's a symbol for God's presence. But here, the fire, it acts as a warning as well. You know, fire, danger. It emphasizes the danger of coming into the very presence of God as unholy people. Having failed to honor him in our sin. Friends, I'm sure I don't need to tell you, we don't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's. As sinners, we should be consumed by God's holiness, destroyed. And yet Moses is not consumed here. You know, much like the bush, which is not consumed, though it is on fire. Oh, oh, the fire, it represents God's holiness and his presence, which is dangerous. But the continual health of the bush, it represents God's mercy. God is holy, and it's right for us to have a, a healthy fear of him. But he's also the God who comes close, who, who enables Moses to come into his presence unharmed. It's just a taste of what God is going to do as we see throughout the rest of Exodus, drawing his people to himself in an incredible way. And we see that as God makes his purposes known to Moses in verse 7. Verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, those things were true. We saw that last week, didn't we? How God's people Israel and Egypt had been put under hard taskmasters for many years. But see how personal God is here and how he relates to Moses. I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them and bring them up. See, God is not distant in his holiness and his majesty. Just as he promised Abraham so many years before, he is going to work to save his people and bring them to himself to experience the blessing of his rule. Well, Moses, he's no, he's no doubt stunned by this great revelation. Yes, finally, God is going to deliver on his promise. Israel's slavery is coming to an end. Yay! 
But now Moses gets a real shock. In verse 10, God says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You know, it's it's like being told, you know, there's this sumptuous family dinner that's been planned for next week. The food's going to be awesome. You get really excited. That's great. And then they say, oh, by the way, you're hosting it. Oh, okay. Suddenly, Moses is not quite as excited about God's deliverance for his people. He, He actually starts to think of ways to excuse himself from God's rescue plan, even as God assures him of his faithfulness in so many ways. Here we have Moses' first excuse in verse 11. God, I'm a nobody. Verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses knew that he was unworthy in himself to do this great task. He'd been a shepherd. For the past 40 years, he wasn't a warrior. He wasn't a politician. He's twice the age of our dear brother Andrew. Moses was an old age pensioner. The only thing that might qualify him is the fact that he is a member of God's people. He's an Israelite. But he's an Israelite who we saw last week had been rejected by his people. The reason he's in the land of Midian rather than Egypt right now is because he's a fugitive whom his people had rejected, and Pharaoh, whom he left behind, was seeking his life. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh with my credentials, with my past, with my baggage? Well, God doesn't answer Moses' question directly. Moses says, who am I? God just makes it clear, well, this plan isn't going to depend on you, Moses. It's going to depend on me. Verse 12, I will be with you. Yeah, Moses is so concerned about himself, his, his condition, his past, but God just says to him, look, it's not actually down to you. It's down to me and my faithfulness, not you. And just as an added comfort, Moses is given a sign so he can know that God is with him in this great task. Have a look down in verse 12, halfway through. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You know, on the mountain where, 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 where Moses was standing. That's an interesting way for God to you know, give a sign of, of reassurance, isn't it? He, he's basically saying, Moses, don't worry. It's down to me. And, and you know that I've sent you, you to bring my people out when you bring my people out to serve me on this mountain. It's a bit like me promising Patrick, Patrick, I'm going to paint your house. And Patrick asks me, well, how do I really know, Tim, that you're going to paint my house? And I say, don't worry, Patrick. You'll know I've done it once it's done. Hmm. Strange way to reassure. What what God is basically doing here is he's, he's calling Moses to trust him. To believe his word of promise. And once he does return safely with God's people, as we will see later in Exodus, he will know God's word is true. But he needs to just step out in faith. He needs to trust God at his word. He's still very reluctant to do that, though. So we have the second excuse 
Moses comes up with, well, well, God, your people don't actually know you, do they? Have a look in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, I don't think Moses is merely just asking for God's name here in the same way you, if you're a stranger to me, you might say, uh, what is your name? And I reply, oh, my name's Tim. You know how to address me now. No, in Hebrew culture, a name meant a lot more than just somebody's label. You can know me as Tim, but that doesn't tell you much about me. But in Hebrew culture, a name represented character in many situations. So the question Moses is really asking here on behalf of his people is, what is this God of our fathers that sent you actually like? After all, you know, Israel have been enslaved and crying out for many years to the God of their father, and he hasn't exactly shown much force for much time. He seemed quite absent. And if Israel reject the God who sends Moses to deliver them now, how much more are they going to reject him, the messenger? Well, God just assures Moses a second time. And he does so but just by describing his character for his people, the meaning of his name. Have a look in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God sums up his character in that phrase, I am who I am. Okay, now stay with me here. Just got to go into a little bit of detail on how these verses are working. God sums up his character in the phrase, I am who I am. But then we have the verb I am in a slightly different form down in verse 15. Have a look, have a look with me. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers. Now, where we read the Lord in those small caps in our English translations, that's the word that represented God's personal name, Yahweh. And Yahweh is derived from the verb to be, or put another way, I am. So God's personal name for his people, Yahweh, is kind of a short form for I am who I am. It's a bit like when my wife sometimes refers to me in a long form as, oh, that's the guy who drives my car. But at other times, just in simple short form, oh, that's my driver. Now, there's been much debate over what God means when he describes himself as I am. Am. Now, some believe God is speaking here primarily about his incomparable nature. He simply is. I am. That there's nothing that we can compare him to in his creation. He, he is self-existent. He is above all things. He's unchanging. He's eternal. He's timeless. What can we compare him to? But we've got to remember the focus here in the Lord's conversation with Moses, is on what he promises to be for his people as their deliverer, as their God. 
So I think we're to take I am here in a more relational sense. And if you just look at the bottom of your page, Exodus 3, look at the bottom and you'll see there's a little footnote, number one. Or I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. I am what I am, or I will be what I be. In other words, that, that's, that's one way we can translate I am who I am. And, and that is what I think God is saying here. Israel are going to learn his character as they experience his actions to redeem them for himself. He will be what he will be. Now, as the old English saying goes, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. You'll know it's true and good as you experience it. And so in verses 16 to 22, God sets a benchmark. He tells Moses exactly what he will be for his people so that they will know him as the Lord who is faithful and mighty to save. They will know him as the Lord who is faithful and mighty to save. Moses is told in verses 16, to just, just go and gather the elders of Israel together and tell them what the God of their fathers will do. He's heard their cries, and so he will say to them by Moses, verse 17, I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt. Verse 18, God promises Moses that they will listen to him. And they're going to go along with Moses, and they're going to go before Pharaoh, and they're going to speak for God, or rather God's going to speak by them. Let my people go. But, verse 19, God knows Pharaoh will not let Israel go until he is compelled by a mighty hand. And then in verse 20, we have another, I will. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. And only then will Pharaoh let my people go. And they will go rich. Verse 21, another I will. God says, I will give this people favor in the side of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. So as Israel experienced these things, these things to come, the God who will be what he will be as he has promised, they will learn that he is the Lord who is mighty and who is able to deliver his people, who is greater than Pharaoh, who defeats all forces that stand against him and his people, He'll show himself to be their all-powerful and faithful deliverer. But Moses is still not satisfied. So we have excuse number three in chapter four, verse one. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. My, My people won't believe me, God. Come on. You really expect my people to take me seriously? I've been gone for 40 years. I've got a bad reputation. I'm a rusty old shepherd. And now I'm going to go and tell them I saw Yahweh in a burning bush. Again, Moses is just completely focused on himself and what his people think of him rather than God and his promises. God's just told Moses, the elders are going to listen to you. Just trust me. But Moses won't. And so in his great patience and mercy, God gives Moses a series of signs. 
that he will do in front of the people to demonstrate Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God who is able to save, is with me, and he sent me to you. Firstly, verses 2 to 6, we have Moses' staff, his shepherd's crook that he would probably would have been holding at that point before the burning bush. And God turns it into a snake when Moses throws it on the ground. And Moses just jumps out of his skin for a moment. But God tells him, Moses, just, just take the snake by its tail. Pick it up. Now, any decent snake handler will tell you, you never, ever normally do that. You never just pick up a snake by its tail. Well, you can, but it's, it's very silly. Moses does as God says. Good, showing a bit of faith. And the snake, it becomes a staff again in his hand. Now, why this particular sign for Israel? Well, it's incredible, but here's one other possibility. The snake in Egypt, which God was sending Moses to Pharaoh, say, let my people go, the snake was a symbol of royal authority. You think of, have you ever been to one of the museums and you see the sarcophagus and you see that sort of the mane that they have on the imprint on the top? It looks like a cobra's mane. It's a symbol of royal authority for Egypt. So by Moses picking up the snake at its tail, it, it may well symbolize Yahweh's authority and the authority of his messenger over Pharaoh. It's a further sign that through Moses, God will deliver his people from their cruel master, no matter how powerful he might seem. God is stronger. Well, we've got the second sign in verse 6. Moses is told, okay, put your hand inside your cloak. Moses does. He takes it out, and it's flaky white. It's covered in disease. But then Moses puts his hand back in his cloak again, takes it out, the very next second, it's good as new. It's the sign. It's a lot more intimate and powerful than the first. I mean, first God just used the staff. Now God is using part of Moses to show his power and authority. You know, we'll see later that Pharaoh's magicians, they can actually produce snakes from staffs using their dark works. But when God sends disease upon them, they are helpless. They just suffer. They can't restore. Only God can inflict great illness and then restore thoroughly and immediately the very next minute. It's a greater sign for Israel that God stands behind Moses as their deliverer from Pharaoh. And if Israel are so stubborn, they won't even pay attention to those signs. Verse 9 Moses is told to take some water from the great river Nile. Pour it on the ground, it's going to become blood. Now the Nile was in one sense the lifeblood of Egypt. The nation depended on it to survive. Israel would know Moses isn't fooling around when he does that final sign for them. And and you just skip forward to verse 31. We see how God is true. And the people, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they had heard that the Lord, Yahweh, had visited the people of Israel, they had seen their affliction, they bowed down their heads and worshipped. God's people believe as they see the signs, just as God promised Moses they would. 
But notice in those verses, Moses isn't doing the speaking. It's Aaron, his brother. And that brings us on to Moses' final excuse. God, I don't talk so good. Verse 10, he's really running out of ideas here. I don't talk so good. Verse 10, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Again, Moses just obsessed over his own shortcomings. I can't do it, Lord. I'm just not able. God's spoken to him in a burning bush that doesn't burn. He's turned a staff into a snake and brought Moses' hand from disease to immediate cure. He's demonstrated he's more than able to use whatever he wants in his creation to achieve his ends. And that's what he reminds Moses of, as assuring him in verse 11. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I gave you your ability to speak, Moses, and I gave it to you for a reason. I made your mouth. I know what you can do better than you do. And so, verse 12, therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Moses has run out of excuses. But like when my mum would tell me to tidy my room for the umpteenth time, you know, I've used the the homework excuse, the wash the dog excuse, the I need the toilet excuse. And the truth that was behind the scenes as to why I didn't want to tidy my room all along just gets blurred out. I just don't want to do it. I just don't want to tidy my room, mum. Well, Moses makes a similar last-ditch effort to excuse himself from God's plan. Verse 13, oh, my Lord, please just send someone else. Lord, just don't make me do this. And much like my mum's patience over my untidy room, so God's patience with Moses starts to wear a bit thin. Verse 14, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. You know, that burning bush that Moses is looking at is getting a little bit more fierce right now. But thankfully, it's still not consumed. And neither is Moses. God is so patient with his stubborn people. In his great mercy, he grants Moses one final support. He's not going to relieve Moses of the task, but he gives him in his mercy another support, a support that Moses doesn't need, but he's going to give it to him anyway. One last comfort blanket. His brother, Aaron, who will speak on his behalf all the words that God gives to him for his people. And finally, God reminds Moses to take his staff with him, lest he forgets. Maybe just a hint that just as God can turn mere staffs into snakes, he can turn just ordinary men into great deliverers. What we're going to see throughout the rest of Exodus, Israel do learn God's perfectly faithful character as the Lord, Yahweh, as the one who is mighty to save, as he works to save them through Moses, his chosen servant, and bring them back to himself. What about us? How can we know that God is everything he claims to be by his word? How do we know that God is faithful? That he is the Lord, 
Yahweh, I am, who keeps his promises to redeem his people. Well, God has made his faithfulness known to us once for all in what this story of Exodus points forward to, the coming of his son, our Lord Jesus, God's faithful deliverer. See, like God here in the Exodus, Jesus came down to us. But he didn't commission someone like Moses to speak for him. When the crowds asked Jesus who he was, he said to them before Abraham was, I am. Jesus declared himself to be Yahweh, to be the God of Exodus, who faithfully delivers his people, who is mighty to save. The God who took on flesh became man to deliver us. And his works testify to that. As he did what only God could do, as he stilled storms, as he healed sickness in a moment, as he raised the dead. And just as he is the far greater Moses, Yahweh come to redeem his people, or so the salvation God brought through him is far greater as well. Not, not just a liberation from physical slavery. No, Israel's slavery in Egypt that we see here, what God promises to redeem them from, is just a picture of the slavery all of us are under in sin. None of us honor God as we should. I just think back over the past week to all the ways in which I've failed to honor God this week, the ones I'm aware of, mistreating others, made in his image, in my impatience and my greed and my hatred and my mixed motivations. All of us need a rescue from God's judgment on our sin. And God himself in his son came down to provide that for all who would trust in him. And in his son, we see the man who lived the life of obedience that we have failed to live and then went to the cruel cross to die the death we deserve for sin so that by his perfect blood we'd be forgiven, we'd be set free, we could be adopted again as God's children, brought into his presence as those made righteous by Jesus' blood. Friends, we know God is a faithful redeemer because we look to Jesus who came and died and rose again as he promised he would for his people. Have you recognized God? Have you recognized the Lord I am? Have you received Jesus as your savior and your God? Well, for those of us who do know Jesus, do you see how he is in a very clear way different from Moses that we've seen here today? That they're both servants come to redeem God's people, but Moses was a very reluctant servant. He refused to take God at his word when called. He feared Pharaoh. He feared his people. He feared his lack of skills. And that fear kept him from obeying at first. It meant he was slow to trust and obey. 
he wouldn't trust God who had called him, who had promised him, I will be with you. I will be your strength. I will be your guide. I will be your mouth. It's down to me. Well, friends, Jesus faced far, far greater hardship than Moses ever did, ultimately in the cross. And on the same night that he was betrayed to that cross, he prayed to his father, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup of your judgment from me. Take it away. His fear was so great, he sweated blood. But unlike Moses, Jesus did not allow the fear of the cross, of what he faced in accordance with God's will, to compromise his faithfulness to God. His prayer ended, not my will, but yours be done. Compared to Moses, Lord, please just send someone else. And as Jesus entrusted himself, even unto death, under God's judgment for our sin, as he endured that agony, God didn't abandon him. He raised his servant, our Lord Jesus, from the dead. And so in him, we now have the promise of eternal life. Will we follow him? Will we entrust ourselves to God as he did? Will we seek his kingdom first? Or will we be like Moses who was slow to believe and obey? As those whom Jesus has called to be servants of his gospel, to take the the good news of the cross to others who are lost in sin and darkness and heading for hell, will we be faithful servants? You know, God may well cause us to face situations we'd rather not face as part of that commission. You know, I know a brother here in Malaysia who's been put in chains three times for witnessing to Jesus. His own family has come and seen him behind bars. He didn't want to go to prison. And his family, though supportive, found that hard to endure But my friend wouldn't stop sharing the gospel for fear of going there. You know, we may not face that level of hardship here in this room, but I imagine we get shaken up when our friends and family mock us simply for being a Christian, for for sharing the gospel with them. How tempted I can be to just go quiet, keep my head down when the heat gets turned up. Not take God's call to witness to his son seriously. And friends, in those moments when you're tempted to just give in, when you're struggling to trust God and his will, look back to the cross where he has made his faithfulness known for us once and for all, where he gave his one and only son to purchase us sinners for eternal life so that even in death we are secure in Christ. You know, I, I wish the cross had been on my heart when I found out that Melissa's visa application had been rejected. Instead of being full of doubt and angry at God, what are you doing, Lord? I'm thinking of quitting my training. 
I've had enough. I could have remembered the cross. I could have trusted in God's love shown to me there unequivocally. As Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, let's be those who rejoice in Christ, not our situations, who know God's faithfulness on the basis of who he has been for us in Jesus And so seek his kingdom first, whatever we might face, knowing we are secure as we trust and obey in our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the almighty God who is faithful to his promises who draws close to his people. And you have shown us your perfect faithfulness and love for us guilty sinners in your Son who came and lived and died according to your will so that we might be reconciled to you, that we might have the hope of eternal life with you in his name. Help us, Lord, as those whom you have brought to faith in your Son and have called, therefore, to be servants of him and his gospel to be faithful. To not fear our situation to the point that we compromise obedience to you, but to just look to the cross continually, to see your faithfulness there and endure whatever we must, that we would be your faithful servants And we will be brought home to that kingdom that we look forward to one day. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.